Matthew chapter 12, and I'll tell you what, I'm going to do a brief review. We had the Haven with us last week, and so two weeks ago we were in Matthew 12, and I'm going to be brief on the intro because we have a big passage today. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you that this thing whipped me all day Wednesday and Thursday into the night, Thursday night, Friday morning, and went away from it, kind of tried to take a day off Friday, came back to it Saturday morning, started getting a little more clarity, and then I think last night started to get a little more peace that, that we're on the right track uh, in trying to teach this. Although there's no doubt more than what we will be able to give you today. So it's going to feel like a few times, just kind of go ahead and telling you. You'll see in a moment when we read these 11 verses, you're going to see a phrase and it's going to be like, oh, he'll probably talk a long time on that and won't be able to. Uh, there's just so much here. Uh, so there will be a few times it'll look like we're just kind of hitting quickly and moving on because we need to. Uh, but ultimately when we get down to the end, we don't want to be in a rush there. Uh, because everything in the passage is kind of heading toward the end of this particular passage. Starts with a narrative and then finishes with Jesus teaching. So here's the scene. Just before we start reading in verse 22, Jesus and the Pharisees had a collision over the S Sabbath day laws. They are accusing his disciples of breaking the Sabbath. Jesus rebukes them, corrects them. He goes on into a synagogue. He ends up healing a man of a withered hand on the synagogue. If you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that the Pharisees then were angry and left the synagogue, and they went out and began to conspire how to destroy Jesus. And in an unusual move, Jesus withdrew. So rather than confront there, he withdrew, not because he's scared, he knows he's going to die, but he knows that's not where and when and not exactly by those people. That he will have enemies and they will kill him, but this is not the way he will die. Not that he's scared, but to keep God's plan on track, he withdraws. People follow him, though. Crowds, large crowds. He heals them, and as he heals them, he tells them, do not make me known. So again, he's withdrawing from the Pharisees and their plot. So the scene is now that he has withdrawn from that location, and I don't know where he is on this, this particular occasion that we're getting ready to read, but he has now moved to a different location. And with that in mind, let's read verses 22 to 32. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind. Just let these descriptions of what's going on in this man's life, just let them mount up. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, he couldn't speak, was brought to him, to Jesus, and he, Jesus, healed him. To what degree did Jesus heal him? He healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So there's a healing described. And you may be thinking, well, while he's at it, Jesus should, should have just gone ahead and cast this devil out. Well, it's pretty clear that he did that as well. Verse 23, and all the people were amazed. And that word there, they really were amazed. It's what really, like really amazed. I won't have time to develop that, but this is a very strong word. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? I may have time in a moment to tell you two possible ways that they ask that. And hopefully, even as I inflect that in English, you'll sense that a little bit different. I don't know 
how they asked it. So we're going to look at two possible ways. The basic question is, can this be the son of David? This is not a question, is this man a descendant, one of the random descendants of David? That's not the question. The question is, is this man, having seen what he'd done to this demon-oppressed, blind, mute man, is this the son of David that is prophesied, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah? Is this what we're looking at? Having seen this, is this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, obviously it being what had happened to the demon-oppressed man, when they heard it, they said, so the crowd's amazed, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now the scene switches. This, those will be a point, the first three verses. Then verse 25 to 30 is kind of its own section. Knowing their thoughts, so perhaps he heard their words. Maybe their words were spoken a little ways away from him. But Jesus, no doubt, knowing what they've said and knowing their heart behind it, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, so here comes Jesus teaching, every kingdom divided, hear that, every kingdom, this is like its own message, and I'm going to have to like give it two or three sentences in a little bit. Jesus says every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided, no house divided against itself will stand. Not going to stand. So now to this point of their charge, Jesus says, and if Satan, again, this is the accusation they've made, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Can I just translate what that means a kind of modern vernacular you guys are about as dumb as a rock if you think i'm casting out demons by satan right if you think that's the plan you're pretty stupid okay that's my translation of what jesus said a little different so verse 26 again if satan casts out satan he's divided against himself so we have a principle in verse 25 and jesus saying verse 26 satan's kingdom is no exception to the principle how then will his kingdom stand verse 27 purely hypothetical and if let's just play the game if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? If, if, as you say, I cast these demons out by Beelzebul, that's where I get my power, then how do your sons cast them out? When I first read that, I kind of thought, what does that even mean? And my mind kind of allowed for is Jesus being sarcastic. Is he saying, oh yeah, you say I do it by this power? Well, how do you guys do it? Oh, that's right, you don't cast out demons. But I don't think it is. We're going to take it at face value for what Jesus is saying. So let's read the verse again. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they, meaning your sons who cast out demons, they will be your judges. They'll tell you how foolish of an idea you, what you said in verse 24 is. But if it is by the Spirit of God, that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That phrase has come upon you means has caught you unaware. It means has surprised you. You've been surprised and you're unaware of what has happened. Verse 29, a parable. 
Or, you see how we could really get lost in this message. You see how each verse kind of has its own. Verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? If that was your plan, that guy's got some stuff and I want to go in and get it, but he's a big old guy. I want to steal some stuff from Ryan Reif over there, all six foot eight of him, big burly strong guy. Yeah, well, if that's your plan, you better do something about Ryan Reif before you go steal his stuff. Verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? You better do something about the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Verse 30 has its own idea. Whoever, this is Jesus, let this sink in, whoever is not with me is against me. Well, I'm not really with Christ then you are against him. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. If you're not part of the church, then you're going against the church. Not talking about a local church, talking about the true church. Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Very exclusive, very narrow view Jesus gives. And then the two verses that are often so controversial. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Pause right there. If there was a period there, and that was its own verse, and that was ended it all, then we could all walk out of here as universalists, believing that eventually everybody gets saved and everybody gets forgiven. Obviously, Jesus is using this qualitatively. He's using this to make another point, which we'll have in a note a little bit later. Verse 31 again, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but, there's this exception, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And, kind of, I think, almost repeating, maybe taking it a little further, maybe making it more clear, what the second part of verse 31 And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus' title for himself. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Can I use the word? Can be forgiven. Doesn't mean automatically you will. You can. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Watch this last phrase. It's important. Will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. They will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Let's notice three things this morning. Number one, this one will be the most brief. Number one, the Pharisees malign Jesus' miracle. The Pharisees just malign Jesus' miracle. Verse number 22, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that he spoke and saw. Guys, i got to repeat something. I know it's repeating. But I need to say some things that I think I have said twice already as we've been in our study of Matthew in the last year and a half or a little over a year and a half. So listen, demons are real. Satan is real. I know there may be someone listening to me right now, and you kind of hear that. Uh, Bless his heart, I I quote Barclay a lot, but I've 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 called him down before, and I think he's now passed away. I'm pretty sure he has. He doesn't seem to really believe in this. And I know the Sadducees in the New Testament, they did not believe in this. If your theology does not allow for a literal idea, a literal representation of 
the, the spirit world, angels and demons and Satan himself, then you are denying what the scripture says. These are real spirit beings. They are real actual beings. Now we look at this and we repeat that Christians, notice the phrase, then a demon oppressed man. So normally we would say it, this was a demon possessed man. Can a Christian be possessed by a demonic force? The answer is no. A true Christian has the Holy Spirit inside of them. Therefore, we cannot have a demon or demonic forces inside of us. The Holy Spirit keeps that from happening. But an unsaved person could have a possession of their body by demons. Can a Christian be oppressed by demons? Certainly, we can be oppressed. And that's the word used here. You say, what would that look like? Without re-preaching a former message, it, it could look like fatigue. It could look like the wildest, craziest, random thought. I have no idea where did that sinful thought even come from. It could be them trying to impress something, in, not from the inside, but from the outside. It could be just a feeling of loneliness or extreme discouragement or darkness. This could be demonic oppression, and you should pray against it. That's why every Sunday I literally pray, and I don't know if the Lord always answers it, but I pray that they would be rid of this building. And I begin at this platform, and I go this direction. I actually go that direction. I sweep around here and around there and around there, and I hit, hit that booth especially. And then I go down that hallway, and then I go down that hallway, and then I go to the other building, and I pray for the grounds around us after I've prayed for my house to be rid of these things. You're like, man, you seriously, these are real beings. This man, though, is not just oppressed, he is clearly possessed. So I'm, I'm going to have you a few times help me today. Everybody's really uh, kind of in tune. Everybody's really, really quiet. What two words are stated like five times in this passage that makes it clear this man was not just oppressed, he was actually possessed? What are the two words? Said over and over. First one starts with a C. How do we know that he was possessed? What did Jesus do? Cast out, right? So we know that this man was possessed, not just oppressed. Second thing, would you look at verse 22? Then a demon possessed, a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute. I'm not, I'm going to refer to Luke 11 without turning there. In Luke 11, Luke's version of this incident, Luke says that Jesus was casting out a mute demon. That tells me this man is blind. I don't know how long he had been blind. Was he born blind? Did he become blind? I don't know if his blindness was related to the demon, but his muteness was definitely related to the demonic possession. When this demon came in, that's what made him mute. Also, another thing that we need to know, you guys know that the Bible was not written in English, so this is a translation. The experts tell me that the word, the Greek word behind mute can mean mute, unable to speak, or it can and often means deaf, or both. Often it's understood. Deaf, deafness usually leads to muteness. If you can't hear, then you're not able to speak, right? And so that may be what's happening, and it could go either way. And I don't know why the translators, probably because of the healing that takes place, because as Matthew writes that, he specifically says that the man spoke, so here's all I'm going to say. I don't know if the man was deaf. I will say maybe, my opinion, 50-50 chance. Maybe he wasn't deaf or maybe he was, and that's what helps causing this. But that would be applied to this demon that is inside of him. Quick point. Who do you know? Who comes to your mind? And be honest. Who do you know right now personally that you could say is in worse condition than this man? He is demon-oppressed, demon-possessed. 
He cannot see. Let that see. He is blind. He can't speak and quite possibly could not hear. I don't know that we know of anyone. I don't know if I know of anyone that was in a worse condition than this man. And yet in a moment, I'm not going to spend long on the miracle because the text doesn't put the emphasis on the miracle. It puts the emphasis on what follows the miracle. All I know this is if this man was deaf and if he was blind and we know that he can't speak and he's demon oppressed and possessed, there is no way that he could have known what was getting ready to happen to him except in a moment when it happens. And if he was deaf, I'm thinking, which one of these four things was the most noticeable to him? You say, well, he has to know. All of a sudden, his eyes are open, but he can't see, and then he can see. That has to, well, maybe, no, no, it might be the ability to hear. Sure, all of a sudden, he hears people, you know, saying things. He hears noises. That's the first. And no, wait, wait a minute. Maybe the most distinguishable thing is that I could talk. Or being released and freed from the power of a demonic force, which all of that happens in this man's life, in a moment of time, that's the power that Jesus has. Notice verse 23 and 24. There are two very different responses. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only Beelzebul, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Well, here's what we have. We have amazement from one group of people, and from another group of people, we have ac accusations. We have amazement. Oh, I said a while ago. This word amazed kind of made my mind start running. Jesus has already, again, we have probably about 40 specific miracles of Jesus recorded in the New Testament. Does that mean Jesus only recorded 40, only performed 40 miracles? No. If I'm reading this correctly, I would dare say that Jesus performed hundreds, maybe thousands of individual miracles with people. Repeatedly already, Matthew has said, many came and he heals them all. And sure enough, they didn't have hospitals, so people are going to bring more and more. So probably hundreds and hundreds. And yet this man, there's something in this. This means they were literally astounded. This means it's the idea they're blown away by what they've seen. So that makes me ask, number one, is this a brand new audience? Have they moved to an area where these people have not seen the miracles of Jesus? This is the first one, and it's so awesome. Others have seen it, but they're seeing it for the first time, and they're amazed like everyone else. Or... Does it mean that he's not in a new area, but there's something so unique about this particular healing and casting out of demons that the people on this day were amazed, astounded, blown away? I don't know the answer to that. Would you look at verse 23? Here's what we do know. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? See that phrase? The way that phrase, you don't see it as much in English here in the ESV. Some translations, you see it a little more. This question demands and calls for a negative answer. So, Jeff, what does that mean? It's calling for a negative answer. It would almost be like this. This isn't the son of David, is it? So I hear that, which tells me they're not fully on board yet with who he is, and he is the son of David. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He is that son of David that's been prophesied. They're not fully on board with it yet, but they're starting to warm up to the idea. So I, there's two ways that I'm thinking, was this asked? And I don't know the answer. I'll just throw it out. Was it, number one, a suggestion by someone? Wow! Oh, my goodness. Can you see? Yeah, I see you moving. You see my... 
You're, you're talking. So you're actually here. Yes, of course I hear what you're Oh, my goodness. This is awesome. You don't think. Are you too? Do you think this, this could be the son of David? Could this be the son of David? You don't think that's him, do you? But another way is there's already a buzz. So it's not someone suggesting it. It's someone seeing this and coming to the conclusion. Could this be the son of David? Could they be right? Some people think, I'm starting to believe. Could this? It isn't. Is this? It's not. Surely not. And you're saying, Jeff, why do you think they just didn't get on board? Can I offer what comes to your mind? Why are people with all of this evidence? No one preaches like him. No one teaches like him. No one heals like him. No one casts out demons like him. What is the holdup? If anything is holding them up, my guess is something, one main thing doesn't add up. And two things we could say. He just doesn't seem to have political aspirations. He's very powerful, and he's a powerful speaker, and he has truths we've never heard before. All of that is awesome. But we just have in our mind this idea of the Messiah, the Christ, that he's going to take Israel to places that we've never been. He doesn't seem to be trending that direction. And also, he's really strange on some of our laws. He seems to us to be breaking the Sabbath. Could this, if he breaks the Sabbath, what we think of the Sabbath laws, could this be the son of David? Let's go ahead and have the next note because I'm, I'm going to hit it briefly. Notice what the Pharisees, notice three things in the note. Pharisees, number one, when they could not deny. I believe that was plan A, but they can't deny. There's very clearly been a miracle done, and this man is a miracle. They cannot deny that he was blind and now sees. They can't deny that he couldn't talk, and now he talks, now he hears. And he's had a demon cast out of him. But notice the second line. Not only could they not deny the clear evidence of the miracle in front of them, they do acknowledge that Jesus has supernatural power. They're saying, yes, he cast out demons, but it's what they do with that. They make this absurd accusation, this absurd attribution of Jesus, this man is only casting out devils by the power of the prince of the devils, Beelzebul, the lord of the flies, the Canaanite god in the Old Testament, the lord of the flying ones, the lord of the demons. He's the one enabling this man to cast out devils. And so that leads us to number two. So they malign, downplay, really, could we say, blaspheme against Jesus. Number two this morning, verses 25 to 30. Jesus then teaches on division and neutrality. He teaches on division, verses 25 to 29. Then he teaches on neutrality. Really, these are two separate points. We're going to make them one this morning. My word's not his, okay? Let's keep your notes going if you're taking notes. What does Jesus teach? There's a principle in verse number 25. Knowing their thoughts, this accusation, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. My word's not Christ, but I think in essence what Jesus is teaching is this. Listen, division leads to destruction. Division leads to destruction. If you allow division to continue, it destroys what is being divided. I thought of a several ways. How would you guys explain this? If you wanted to get the point across, my family does construction up in North Carolina, right? And so they have like pieces of heavy equipment and they do lots of digging in the dirt and those types of things, laying pipe and utilities and those, type, those types of things. 
they don't really work down here, but I want you to imagine at your house you have hired someone to come with their backhoes, and they're going to do work on your property. Now picture it. There's two backhoes. So here's one backhoe, and he's digging a hole, and he puts the dirt over here. But what if exactly opposite of him was another backhoe? And this other backhoe, literally, as this one starts digging the hole and drops the dirt over here, as he comes back for his second swipe, this other backhoe, these two guys are facing each other. Well, he takes his boom, and the dirt that was just laid over here, he scoops it back up. So this guy, and they're just doing this. And he repacks it. And this one comes up, scoops again. Oh, yeah, you just put this. I'm going to take it up and repack. And all day long, they're doing this. And at the end of the week, you get a bill. What are you going to do? He said, I ain't paying that bill. You guys did nothing. He dug a hole and he filled it right back in. He literally undid everything that he did. You're out there fighting against each other. I'm not paying. Listen, the company will not stand because the company is divided. I thought of like four and a half years ago. I put a resume in here. What if I put a resume in at Graceview because I would love to be the pastor at Graceview. But I finally meet with the pastoral search committee. And we go over to Da Vinci's and we're sitting there. And I'm saying, guys, really, hey, you know, Ray and John and Gary, listen, it's nice to meet you guys. I'd really love to be the pastor at Graceview. But I will tell you one thing. What's that? The dumbest thing you could do would be to present me as a pastor of Graceview. You really shouldn't do that. You shouldn't tell Don't even tell the deacons and the elders about me. The last thing you want to do is put me before that congregation. But I'd love the job. But you really shouldn't do it. You're like, you're not going to get, no, I'm not going to get that job. Why? Because division leads to destruction and demise. I cannot linger here because we've got to keep moving. But guys, let verse 25 and the principle sink into us because it frightens me. I don't know that we are feeling this in our country. So we have prayer meetings, and I get it. Listen to me. I understand we've been very sporadic. We're not going to have this coming Wednesday night. We didn't have it last Wednesday night. We had it the, the one before. So it's not been clearly communicated. But do you know we've not had that many people coming to our prayer meetings on Wednesday night? So we're going to have one on the 14th, and I'm pretty sure we'll have one again on the 28th which will immediately be the Wednesday preceding the elections. I'll go ahead and tell you, we've prayed for our nation then. I was gone. I had to be at a funeral in North Carolina, so I don't know what they prayed for a week and a half ago. I'm assuming they prayed for our nation. You say, well, then what will we do next time? We're going to pray for our nation again. We're going to pray for other things, but we're going to pray for our nation. Why? And we'll do it again on the 28th. You know why? Because we're in a mess. Listen to me. Division leads to destruction. We're called, what's the name of our nation? We're called the... United States. We are the United States in name only. Now, here's the problem. Throughout our history, we have had, we've always had differences of ideas, differences of opinions, but we have welcomed differences of ideas and opinions. I, for one, I'll go on record. I'll tell you straight up. It is a really good thing that everybody in our country does not think exactly the way I have thought all of my life. You know why? Because I've been really wrong a lot in the past. Probably not in the future, but I've been, there's been times, and no, I'm kidding. I have beliefs right now that are not correct and accurate. I have opinions on things in the country that are just not accurate. It is a really good thing that everybody hasn't nor does think the way that I do. It's a good thing, right? Here's what scares me. I hope I'm wrong, but I really sense that there are some of our own people who want negative things to happen to the United States. Have you sensed that? Like... And some are causing negative things. But I'm not even saying those who are doing the negative things against us. I think some, if they were put to a lie detector, true or false, you're glad that this happened. You're glad that this is happening. 
I think there's some people who have power. If they were literally hooked up to the lie detector and had to say yes or no, it would come out that they are glad. You say, why in the world would they do that? I think they have this idea that these negative things are going to bolster their cause in the future. Let these bad things happen because it's going to help me and mine in the future. I think that's very foolish. Here's why. Underlying that, listen to me, there's an assumption that is a presumption that we, the United States, are impervious to demise. We're impervious to that. We're the United States. We're going to always. As though we cannot fall. That is not true. Guys, look around the world. I'm going to make a simple statement. I'm going to move on from this verse. This is a very simple statement. You say, Jeff, it's kind of obvious. Taste this when you get home. Every other kingdom in, in human history has fallen, with the exception of the few that are currently in place. For thousands and thousands of years, little small kingdoms, little bit bigger kingdoms, really big kingdoms, they have all fallen. I'm saying the land stays the same after the split land. I don't want to get into that back in Genesis. But as far, once it's in place, the land stays the same, and some of the peoples, but the types of government and rule, they come and they go. We're one of the oldest ones around. I realize there's some, and I saw one that goes back to the 300s, this little bitty section of people somewhere near Italy, right? They've somehow been spared. But what you find is people come and they go. What is the problem? Division often weakens them. Our country was very vulnerable in 1776. Well, you can say you're a new country. Are you going to be able to make it happen? 1812, we were very, very vulnerable. In the 1860s, very, very vulnerable, and that was kind of like today. The reason we were in trouble there is because we were divided amongst ourselves. World War I, World War II, we were in trouble, but the difference there was we were united in those. I think we are facing something in our country right now that is extremely dangerous, and I don't know that we're sensing how dangerous it is. You say, then what should we do? Don't be part of the problem of division and pray for God to show mercy. Whatever happens, we've earned and we should get from the Lord. It will be justice, but would he allow mercy? What if God's people are not praying? Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house. I was going to tell you, because of our sinful natures, you put people together, even Christians, Division's going to come, and when it comes, without compromising God's truth, can't compromise God's truth, but when division comes, we'd better find the common ground that unites us instead of focusing on that which divides us. And our country right now seems to really be focusing, and I'm afraid we're going to learn a hard lesson. We are not impervious to demise. We should be praying. Look at verse 26. Based on that as a principle, Jesus is going to say, here's... No exception to the rule. They've accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Jesus says, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? As I said earlier, I'm going to be very brief on verse 26. If you guys honestly think that's what's taking place, that's the dumbest, most foolish thing that's ever been said. Do you think Satan is fighting himself? If you're taking notes, let's write this down. It is very apparent Satan's goal is world domination. Part of the plan to accomplish world domination is to have his demonic hordes possess individual human beings. 
I don't know how many he has at his access as compared to how many are on the planet at any given time. Maybe we outnumber them at this point. Maybe we don't. But he would love to have his demonic forces indwelling and possessing people and controlling them. So the last thing that he would want to do is come along on his own power and cast out his own demons. But listen, if he casts out his own demons, he's in essence casting himself out because they're doing his work. If he does that, he's undermining his own goals. That is not what is taking place, and Jesus knows that. He's showing them how foolish of a proposition that would be. Quickly look at verse 27. One brief thought here. Because we've got to keep moving. Jesus says in verse 27, I already alluded earlier, this one is purely hypothetical. He's going to play along. Let's just go with what your accusation is accusing me of. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, this is not an admission. He's going to clear that up in verse 28. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jeff, what in the world does this mean? Do you think he's being sarcastic? I don't think he's being sarcastic. I don't think he's saying, hey, at least I do it. How come you, you guys aren't doing it? How do you do it? Oh, that's right, you don't do it. That's not what he's saying. What do you think is happening? I think what the Lord is saying, there were other Jewish people, either through the centuries or in the land of Israel, who were the sons of Israel, the sons of the Jews, you could even say the sons of the Pharisees potentially, that actually did cast out demons of people. You say, you really think other people? Absolutely. Jesus' disciples end up having the power to cast, pe cast demons out of people. They have some that they couldn't do it, though. Listen, we won't go there. Mark chapter 9, John, the youngest, very zealous, comes up to the Lord. He's kind of fiery. He says, Lord, we found this guy, and he's casting out demons in your name, but he's not following us. I'm going to go straighten him out. Is that all right? And Jesus says, no, you leave him alone. Leave him Notice, he didn't say he thinks he's casting out demons in your name. No, he's saying he's casting out demons in your name, but he's not following with us geographically. I'm going to go straighten him out. No, there's an admission. He is casting out demons. After the time of the Lord on the earth, in Acts chapter number 19, the Bible says that there were these seven sons of a man named Sceva, who was a Jewish priest, and it caused them itinerant exorcist. So it implies to us, if we take it at face value in Acts 19, that these seven sons had cast out demonic forces. The problem was, was, in this case, they come up to one that was apparently very powerful in a man, and they say, by the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, so apparently they've got a new way of doing it, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we adjure thee to come out. And then this particular demonic force says, I know Jesus and I've heard of Paul, but I don't know who you guys are. And then this man jumped on them and ripped their clothes out. And all seven of these brothers went out of the house basically naked and whipped. So it didn't work, but it had worked in the past. What does verse 27 mean? R.T. France writes the following. The uniqueness of Jesus's exorcistic ministry consists in the nature and authority of his exorcisms not in the lack of any other exorcists so it's not that none of them exist Jesus is unique Jesus has his own authority Jesus always is successful and apparently others were not that's what makes Christ so unique look very quickly at verse 28 
Verse 27 was purely hypothetical. Now I want to say, because you had the word if, right? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, but I don't, but let's play your game. Verse 28, there's another if. This is not hypothetical, ladies and gentlemen. This is revelatory. I'm about to say something that I'm not going to dig in long, but I hope the Lord will reveal to us a truth in verse 28, 28, a couple of truths that I think are extremely important. So really, say, Lord, show me what Christ is about to teach us. If I do it by their power, then it would mean this. How come you're holding me to a standard? Your own people, you've heard of some reports, your own people have cast out demons. You don't accuse them of doing it in the power of Satan. Why do you ascribe that to me? How come you're not as fair as, if you don't get on them and accuse them of that, and yet you accuse me? That's not a fair analysis that Christ is saying. But verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Ladies and gentlemen, think what is Jesus telling us? If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it's by. Listen. There is no denying Jesus has cast out demons. He has absolutely done this. This is undeniable. Now he is telling us how he cast out demons. And this is going to play right into verse 31 and 32 in a moment. So how did you do it? If it's not by the power of Beelzebub, we don't know. These other guys have different, strange, according to Josephus, some strange techniques in how they try, but you were always successful. How do you do it? Listen, Christ says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Jesus is God in the flesh on earth. He has his own power. He is literally God the Son in the flesh. But while on earth, he does not walk around and move pulling on his own power. The theologians tell us that he laid, he laid aside his glory and he laid aside a lot of his power. Only to be independent, not to be independently used, but to be used as God the Father willed it. So how is he going around doing all of these powerful things? Here he tells us. So if you're taking notes, write the following. As God, I'm going to propose this to you and there's other passages to show this, as God, Jesus has all power. Could I say he has all holiness? So much so that, Jeff, do you think out in the wilderness he could have sinned? Could he, would he? Here's all I know. As God, he has all power against sin, and he has full the, the holiness of God. It is his nature. He would not have sinned. He would not have sinned as God. But being the God-man, watch, as man... While he was on earth, Jesus made a choice in the plan of God that he would not just operate in his own power as God and as the Son of God. He would operate and perform the ministry that God had for him. And he, listen, he would live a holy life. Live a holy life. Well, of course, he's God. He's God the Son. He's opposed to sin. That's not how he lived his holy life. He lived in full reliance constantly on the Holy Spirit. How did he do his ministry? The Holy Spirit came on him at baptism. Then he goes out and is in, in the wilderness and tempted by Satan. And how does he do this? Not on his own strength, but by the, it's, there's, there's a reason the wilderness followed the baptism. If you're taking notes. As man, he chose to live a godly life and perform his ministry by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? I believe this is it as an example to you and to me. I believe it's an example. He could have come here and lived a perfect sinless life and performed all of this ministry just because of who he is. And we'd walk away and say, yes, that's Jesus. He's so far different than us. We could never be like him. But what if he's setting an example? What if Christ, 
demonstrated for us, here's how, listen, you and you, here's how you will live the Christian life. How? We're not Jesus. If you are a Christian, you are possessed by the Holy Spirit of God. But if you will be filled with the Holy Spirit, when we are filled, when you and I are filled, we perform. We have the ability to perform the ministry that God calls us to. When we are filled, we have the ability, filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a godly, holy life. Left to yourself, just possessed, but not filled with the Holy Spirit, we will wander off into sin and be very susceptible. How do you live your life? Christ showed us it's not just him as God, it's him as a man, the God-man, yet relying on the Holy Spirit. That's how he cast out demons. One more thing out of verse 28. And we're going to come down the home stretch and get to verse 31, 32. Would you, everybody, you have your Bibles open? This is not going to be on the screen. Would you look at verse 28? And I'm going to ask a question, and I'm curious, again, all we can do is be wrong, and it's not the end of the world. I've had an advantage of reading this multiple times, right? So I know we may not want to. I wonder who will have the courage to say out loud what verse 28 teaches. Watch it. So I don't do by the power of Beelzebub, but if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, has caught you unaware, has caught you by surprise. What does Jesus' words in verse 28 tell us about the kingdom of God? Nobody wants to say real loud. I'm hearing some whispering. It means that the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. So Jesus' words mean the kingdom has come. This is unique, uh, Victor, you and I, Jacques, there you sit. This is what we were talking about two weeks ago. So the kingdom has come. But hold on, Jeff, all these prophecies in the Old Testament, in, in the New Testament, after the Gospels, we have these epistles. The New Testament seems to be teaching us that the kingdom is coming. And Jesus says the kingdom has come. Remember, John the Baptist, kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus even says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he's saying as he started his ministry, the kingdom has come. So which is it? Is the kingdom coming or has the kingdom come? Which is it? So, that's right. The answer is Yes. Both. The kingdom. So how do we explain that? Which is it? Watch. The Old Testament prophesied kingdom of God, listen, began in its initial phase when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago. It, the kingdom began there. How much so? So much so that, well, here's the key to the kingdom of God. Wherever Jesus is specially manifesting his presence, that's where the kingdom is. The kingdom is with him. He's within heaven. The kingdom of God is to come. He comes down to earth 2,000 years ago. The kingdom has come. But then he goes back to heaven. But then he sends a comforter. It is his spirit that is inside believers. The kingdom has come so much so that from then till now, 2,000 years, everyone who has put their faith and trust in Christ experiences him not only as their Savior, we also, all believers know this to be true, we experience him as Lord sitting on the throne of our hearts. 
And so the kingdom came then. The kingdom continues, though it is not visible. I cannot look around this morning. I have my suspicions, right? But I cannot definitively say who among us are truly Christians, who is truly experiencing the invisible, not seen to the naked eye, kingdom of God right now. We don't know. But some of us, many of us, I hope all of us are in the kingdom. And how would we know that? He is literally the king sitting on the throne. He is Lord of our life. And yet, the New Testament and the Old Testament combined still tells us there's this other aspect of the kingdom that is still yet future. What's the difference? Here's the difference. That will be not invisible. It will be visible, literal, worldwide. Christ sitting on a throne, not just in heaven, not just in our hearts, literally on a throne in Jerusalem, on this earth as the curse has been lifted. So the kingdom has come. The kingdom is still coming, and yet the kingdom will come at an event when Christ comes back the second time. And that is kind of how we would look at that and say, wait a minute. Yes, the kingdom has come, is coming, and will come. Now that we're thoroughly confused, how does this happen? Right now, it happens one person at a time. Verse number 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house? So I'm going to get your feedback again. You guys just feel free to help me here. Verse 29. This one's not that hard, I don't think. So let's go. I'm going to ask you, who is, what is this? And what does that stand for? Here's a parable from Jesus. How can someone enter a strong man's house? Remember the context. What happened back in 22? What are people saying? Some are amazed. Some are making an accusation. Verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Quick, this one I wouldn't expect you to speak out really loud. What is the house? In this analogy, in this parable, What is the house? The house is the body of this man that was healed in verse 22. That's the house. So the second question we would ask, who is the strong man in the house? The demonic forces, be it one or many. So the binding of this strong man is where Christ comes in, binds this demonic force, and then ultimately causes him to leave, and then the plundering of his goods means, I'm going to take possession of the house and use it for how I want to use it. So I'm very brief on verse 29. You say, Jeff, what's the point? Watch. You're out furthering Satan's kingdom. You're being used by the devil to further, you're doing his work. You know what Christ says? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not helping Satan's kingdom. I'm destroying Satan's kingdom one person at a time. I'm not sneaking through the back door. Hey, over here's an escape. What Jesus is saying is I barge right through the front door in broad daylight because I'm stronger than Satan. I'm stronger than any demon. They have to leave. I just take control of this person because of who I am, and I'm doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. One person at a time bringing them into the kingdom. Now verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I'm going to give you my opinion here very quickly. I know we're kind of teachy today. There's an underlying preaching element that is in today's passage. I think verse 31 and 32 is mainly aimed at the Pharisees, obviously. But could it be that verse 30 is aimed at this uncommitted, unsure crowd? Everybody with me? 
Could this be the son of David? But he doesn't seem very political. He doesn't have to seem to have those aspirations. Do you think? Maybe. I don't know. I think what Christ is saying in verse number 30 is you have to get off. This is a very important point, verse 30. I think he's aiming at the unsure crowd less than he is the Pharisees here. A lot of people think it's okay to be uncommitted. A lot of people think, well, that literally some, somebody may be sitting here right here this morning. Somebody may be watching online right now, watching this later. And here's their mentality. You know what? I'm not really for Christ. I kind of come to church every now and then, and I do try to, you know, catch some teaching and preaching here and there. But I'm not really, like, guys, I literally, I think a month ago, I talked to someone who fits in the category of what I'm talking about. I literally talked to them face to face. I think I talked literally at my house. I sat there, and looking back now, I think I'm, I, I was talking with someone who's pretty much this. I, I'm, not, I'm not really going to go real far with that whole church stuff and that whole Christianity. I, just up to, in essence, what they're saying, I'm not really with Christ, but in their mind, oh, I'm certainly not dumb enough to be against Christ. Jesus doesn't allow for that third person. Right now, right now, you, according to Jesus, are either a member of the kingdom of God or you are a member of the kingdom of Satan. There is no in-between. Though a lot of people's attitude, hey, I, I don't want to be a for or against. I just want to be left alone. I just want to get along. Jesus says you are a member of the kingdom of God or you are a member of the kingdom of Satan. Help me out. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 tells us we are all born in one of these kingdoms. Which one of the kingdoms are we all born in? We're born in the kingdom. We're literally, according to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, we are born following the prince of the power of the air. Following him on a sinful road, dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin. We're not only away from God, we're born going further and further away from God following Satan. So here's what that means. You're one or the other according to verse 30. You're born in one. And so to be in the other, something must happen. There must be a moment of time. Now here's the thing. I dare say that every one of us would say, oh, I'm a member of the kingdom of God. Then I have three questions. When did that happen? If you're here this morning and say, oh, I'm, I'm this right here. Jesus says, uh, verse 30, whoever's not with me is against me. I'm with him. I'm, if there's only two choices, I'm definitely with God. Answer this in your mind. When did that happen? Because it's a moment where you go from this kingdom to this kingdom, Colossians chapter number 1. He has translated us. He has moved us from one to the other. When did that happen? Second question, what took place in your mind, what do you look at and say, this is when it happened, and here's how it happened to move me from Satan's kingdom over to the kingdom of God in Christ? When did it happen? What exactly happened? Third question. It's easy to say you're a member of the kingdom of God. What evidence? Here's my third question. What evidence do you have in your life that says you were no longer in the kingdom of Satan, which you were born in, following the prince of the power of the air? What evidence do you have that shows you are truly a member of the kingdom of God in Christ? Because this, look at the second part of verse 30. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Because it's easy to say, ladies and gentlemen, it's easy to say, what evidence do you have in your life that shows you? Do you gather with the Lord? 
I don't mean gather with his people. Oh, I go to church. No. Is your life one of you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're saying, I, I've been saved for X amount of years, 10, 15, 20 years, but I do not serve the Lord in any way, then are you really a member of his kingdom? Christ says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're not reaping and harvesting and gathering with me, then you are scattering. Very black and white. That's his teaching, not mine. And then lastly, verses 30 and 31, we find the unpardonable sin. Verse 30 and 31, the unpardonable sin. I realize I'm like you guys. I know where our eyes go. We look at verse 30 and 31, 31, 32, and we're thinking, let's get to the second part of 31, the second part of verse 32. Let's get over there. What in the world is that talking about? Hey, guys, listen. If we skip 31a, do you see 31a? If we just skip that, we're skipping the really, really good news. Don't just skip. Don't get in a rush. Jeff, it's 1146. Got to get to the second part. Tell us what this unpardonable sin is. Tell us what this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Guys, don't miss verse 31. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. He is not saying once the time will come where all people will be forgiven. No, what is he saying? Take a note. This is good news because, guys, you say, Jeff, we already know this. You say it every week. But what? just hear it fresh. This means God, Jesus, the Son of God, come to earth to tell us that God is willing to forgive every kind of sin. And every amount of sin. Every kind. And I know we're going to hit this one exception. Do you guys understand what verse 31a means? Every kind of sin. But what if you do it like a lot? Every amount of sin. These every kind of sin. I wrote down a sample of sins. Fornication. Do you know what fornication is? It's sex before marriage. Murder. Physical, literal, killing another person's body. Or killing them in your heart, in your mind. Killing their spirit. We learned that in chapter 5 of Matthew. Their words. Fornication, murder, adultery. You say fornication, adultery, same thing. No, adultery is after you've entered a marriage bond and covenant, then you step outside of that with physical activity. And we also know it's in the heart as well. Idolatry, like literal, there's an image or anything that we love more than God. Blaspheming God's names, blaspheming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ homosexuality, lying, physical abuse. You know what I'm talking about? People that just slap other people. Not self-defense. They're the ones that's causing the, just slapping, punching, kicking, hitting them with things. Verbal abuse, sometimes doing more damage, like killing their spirit, killing the soul of a person. Physical, verbal abuse, incest. Drug abuse, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, drunkenness, alcohol addiction, pride, stealing, hatred, lust, anger, bitterness. These are the things that God is willing to forgive. Any amount of them, any of those things. You say, Jeff, why did you give that list? This is us. This is us. I just read you a list. I dare you. 
to go back and listen to that list. Write those things out and go to check your heart. And, and how many could you say, I've not done that one? Most of us, and the guy standing here right now, is guilty of the vast, vast majority of these things, either literally carrying them out or committing them in the heart. This, verse 31a is not permission to go out and continue to sin. It's a call that you can be forgiven. Forgiven means no debt. Forgiven means being put back on the right side of the law. Forgiven means where you miss the target, like you missed. And oh, by the way, you missed the target because you intentionally shot this way. You didn't just fall over the line. You stomped over the line of God. But God puts you back. Jesus pays all the debt. In Christ, he literally makes us what God's intended us to be all along. In Christ, we become the people that God... That's what forgiveness is. So don't blow by verse 31. Verse 31 is awesome. Verse 32. I'm sorry, look at the end of verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man meaning himself, speak a word against Jesus, be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, I need to talk about verse 32 just for a moment. Everybody look at the end of verse 32. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, so we have this awesome promise, 31a. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. I am not telling you that my interpretation of the, what we're about to look at is perfect or all right or complete. And, but I, I think, in fact, some of the answers that, that the Lord has given me to the questions we have, I don't know that I saw them particularly collected in, in this way in any, anyone's writings. And I, so I might be wrong, but I'm going to offer this to you. Here's where I need to begin. However we define the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it needs to include this idea. It is an act that once it is performed by this person, has moved them beyond forgiveness, here's the key, from that moment that they committed it. Did you guys read verse 32 that way? Would you look at verse 32 at the end? So it's not just like I have thought before, well, yeah, if you always just refuse to believe, refuse to believe, refuse, 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 well, eventually when you die, well, yep, you're not going to get a chance to. I, studying it this time, I've now kind of adjusted. This is something that once it's performed in the life, in time and space, then at the moment that it's committed, they've done an act that moves that person beyond forgiveness from that moment because the text says they will not be forgiven either in this age. Not going to have it. And certainly not in the age to come. So what is it? I'm going to give you three ideas. There could be others, I'm sure. And the first two are not on your handout. Um, maybe just didn't have room. Um, but they did not. I'm offering them. All right? So I'm going to offer the word may. This may mean the following. So I'm going to offer the first one. You ready? Just hear it. What is this blaspheming the Spirit? Let's read the text one more time. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. The idea of can be. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Three possibilities. 
Number one, just hear it. It may mean to speak against the name. This is simple. This is very simple. It may mean to speak against the name and the person of the Holy Spirit. It could be that simple. Many of us have taken the Lord's name in vain. Good Lord, oh my God. The name of Jesus we've taken in vain. The good news, God will forgive those. Is this simply saying that if you speak against, that's the idea of blasphemy, if we were to speak against the name of the person of the Holy Spirit, in other words, at the job site tomorrow, you'll hear the name of God taken in vain, and on most of the movies that they put out these days, the name of Jesus and the name of God is taken in vain. How often do you hear the name of the Holy Spirit? So apparently there's still some fear and trepidation that keeps people from just launching out a verbal attack taking, misusing, taking in vain, speaking against, defiantly, arrogantly, angrily. You may get by with it against God the Father and against God the Son, but you better not do it against the Holy Spirit because you may be committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That may be what we're looking at, possibly. The second one, though, I'm going to offer, again, not in your notes. Blaspheming, so here I'm going to get back to this text. Follow me. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit may mean, everybody with me, to ascribe his work to another person. So it's his work, ascribe it to another person, particularly in context here, ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit to who? Satan. Is that, what, is that what's taking place? So I'm going to be very brief here. The Holy Spirit, who allowed Jesus to cast out devils? The Holy Spirit allowed. The power, it was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet the Pharisees say it was done in the power of Satan. And that prompts Jesus, because he doesn't just, you have to read this in context. It needs to be kept in context. Their charge in verse 24 brings Jesus to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Could it be as simple as this? The, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is how I cast out devils. And now you're saying that my power comes from Satan. So you're attributing what the Holy Spirit did to Satan. Could we even jump ahead and say, you in essence are calling the Holy Spirit Satan. Though if that's the take here, then I think the Pharisees are not looking at it that way. They definitely believe in the Holy Spirit of God. They're not like the Sadducees. They believe in the Holy Spirit of God. And if they thought for a moment that Jesus was doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit, then they would not have made that. Is it this simple? Jesus saying, hey, listen, you think that? I'm telling you this. Don't ever say that again. You're in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you do, you are unforgivable. You are past forgiveness. Don't ever do it again. Is he just giving a warning? You're getting dangerously close to the line. You better back up. Don't say that again. So, abusing his names, speaking against the Holy Spirit, or ascribing what he does to the work. Hey, one quick thought. Christians, I watch some things sometimes that are done in the name of religion, in the name of Christianity, and I got to tell you, I get very suspicious, right? There's some stuff, I look at that like, I don't know if I believe that. Can I encourage us, be careful before we vocalize accusations and make assumptions. Be careful. I don't want to be found guilty of saying that something the Holy Spirit really is doing and ascribing it to another. Now, they're being led by demons. Be careful. They may be. You say, Jeff, how in the world would you know? 
just let it ride until you hear their message. If their message is against the Scripture, then you would know, yeah, they're not doing what they're doing in the power of the Holy Spirit. But stay on safe ground. Listen to the message. Don't get caught up casting judgment just on what you think. That's not how we do it. We're Baptist. We're Gracefee. We don't do it like that. So that's not how careful. We don't know what God's doing around the world. It's not our place. That's a little side note, a little side sermon, a little free one. All right, number three. Write this one down. Can I propose to you this morning that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit means to clearly understand His message, the Holy Spirit's message about Christ, and yet reject Him. We could say Him, reject the Holy Spirit, or reject Jesus because we're rejecting the Holy Spirit. In essence, as the note will finish in a moment, as you see it on the screen, we're in essence calling Him a liar. So you're writing that one, right? Let's taste that again. I'm going to propose to you that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit means to clearly understand His message, the Holy Spirit's message, about Christ, and yet reject the Holy Spirit, reject Him and Christ, and in essence, by doing so, calling the Holy Spirit a liar. The key thought, I think, here is to clearly understand what the Holy Spirit's message is about Christ. I mean... Not like an ignorant person, unsure of what the Bible says. I mean a person who clearly understands and yet still refuses to believe, still rejects because you're rejecting the Holy Spirit. And by doing so, in essence, you are saying you're a liar. That's not true. Now, I need to bear this one out just for a moment. I'm looking at my time. I'm going to let you write that because I want you to, to hear what I'm about to say. I'm not going to take time, but Mark chapter 3 talks about this. Luke 11 talks about this. Mark 3 talks about this. In Mark 3, this is just some clues I'm going to throw at you, why I've arrived at mainly this one. In Mark chapter 3, Mark says that these Pharisees that make this accusation about Jesus casting out devils by Beelzebub, they are scribes that have come up from Jerusalem. Okay, that's a piece of information that we don't see in Matthew. So these are scribes, listen, from Jerusalem. I want to add another chapter 3. Watch, John chapter 3. You say John 3, John 3.16, yes. What precedes John 3.16? Jesus is having a conversation with what person? Nicodemus. So help me out. Nicodemus, the Bible says in John 3, there was a man of the what? Anybody remember that? I had to memorize that when I was a little kid in Christian school. There was a man of the what group of people? Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. Now, I wonder, does anybody here remember this? I want you to help me. There was a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. He comes to Jesus by night, and he says to him, Rabbi, what's the next word he says? We. Watch. Rabbi, we. Who is we? We just said it. He's a man of the Pharisees. This is John 3. This is early. John does his take on the, on the gospel of Christ in his life, kind of, he seems to hover mainly about the Passovers. The first year Passover, the second year Passover, and ultimately in the third one, he's going to be crucified. And he kind of builds it. The other three gospel writers, they've covered the Galilean ministry heavily. He, he mainly focuses on what happens down in Judea and Jerusalem. Watch. These scribes here that make this charge against Jesus are coming up from Jerusalem. John 3, we know that one of their leaders says, hey, can, can we talk? Listen. So you know, we know. Here's what he says. We know that you're a teacher come from God. 
Because no man does the miracles that you do except God be with him. What? We, the Pharisees, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no man does the miracles that you do except God be with. What is he saying? We know that you do what you do by the power of God. And they were right. But there were some things they just weren't adding up and they were a little bit skittish, maybe power hungry. And so they're holding up, watch, in their head at one time, they're acknowledging the power of Christ. Fast forward to this chapter, you know what we have now? You're doing what you do in the power of Beelzebul. You see what happened? A shift has occurred. They've gone from believing some truth because the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. They have it in their head. Now they're saying, not Nicodemus. I believe Nicodemus is in heaven. But these people have moved from their original position of at least a head belief to now they're saying, yeah, you don't do what you do by the power of God. You do what you do in the power of Satan. They've moved. D.A. Carson helps us here, so I'm going to give you a quote. I know it's been a long time. I know I've been preaching a while. I want you to really try to get this. Verse 31 and 32, Carson writes the following. He says, the distinction between blasphemy against the Son of Man, Jesus, and blasphemy against the Spirit is not that the Son of Man is less important. He's right. We could read that and say, well, wow. Apparently, you can get away with blaspheming God, and you can blaspheme Jesus. Just don't mess with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit must be up. No, 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 no. Carson's right. It doesn't mean the Son of Man is less important. Now he circles back. Watch what Carson writes. The first sin, blaspheming Jesus, is rejection of the truth of the gospel. I think he's correct. The first sin, speaking against Jesus, is rejection of the gospel. I don't accept that you are who you say you are. I don't accept that. But here's the good news. Carson writes, but there may be repentance and forgiveness of that. You're like, this person doesn't believe that about Jesus, and they don't believe the gospel. But you can repent of that, and you can receive forgiveness of that. So then what's the second one? This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He writes, the second sin is rejection. This is tricky. It's rejection of the same truth, the truth of the gospel. You're rejecting it. Here's the difference, though. He says the second sin is rejection of the same truth in full awareness that that is exactly what one is doing, thoughtfully, willfully, self-consciously rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. Why would he word it that way? Ladies and gentlemen, this is important. We have Father, Son, and Spirit. It's God's plan. The Lord Jesus Christ has carried out the plan. But the one who wrote the Bible specifically is the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's book. The one who takes the words of a track or something on TV or on the radio or a live person or a one-on-one conversation, that whatever it was used to bring you to salvation, that what really happened there is the Holy Spirit is the teacher. I won't turn there, but reference 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, the second part of the verse. 1 John 5, 6, the Holy Spirit is the testimony. He's the one who gives the testimony. So what is happening here? Carson, can I reword Carson's take? Let me reword it in my own simple words. We may go from unbelief to belief. But apparently, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is you better not go from belief, even even if it's just in the head, but it's a strong belief in the mind. You better not go from a belief in the mind back to unbelief. 
If you do, you may be on the line of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You are consciously choosing. It's one thing for a person to say, man, I'd love to. I just, can't, I just can't believe that. And eventually they do. But over here, this other person, well, yeah, I believe that, and I believe that, and I believe that. They believe it all in their head. But eventually later in life, they move back over to this position. Oh, I don't believe that anymore. If you're taking notes, write this quickly. This speaks of unbelief in the face of clear revelation. Clear revelation. So, Jeff, what do you think? What kind of people commit the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Guys, I don't think it's as much. It could be the guy on the job. Because I think it's less the people who have nothing to do with church. I think it is those who at one point in their life were associated with the church. And as I say this, I realize some of you are going to say, I know someone like that. And this is what's fearful. My opinion is that I believe this sin is mostly committed by those people who once associated with the local church and the church, though they were never really saved. And the problem is because they were never really saved, they later on apostatize from the teaching of the church once and for all, and they move away from it. Guys, I want to tell you who I am fearful for in this day and age. Here's who my heart goes out to. Here's who I am afraid for. I am fearful for young people reared in churches that regularly hear the gospel on a regular basis, and they hear it true and clear in biblical ways. And they believe it in their head. They believe it in their head. Yes, I believe that. But they don't ever trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior while the Spirit is revealing that this is true. They're in their youth. It's clear. They know what the Bible says. They believe it in the head. The Holy Spirit's showing them this, but they don't like actually go all the way to trust, only to later be corrupted by worldly beliefs and eventually later on deny God altogether. That's who I'm afraid very well may be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It is this person... It's the person who the Spirit of God has clearly shown what the Bible says about their sin. So much so they get convicted. They're convicted. And God shows them, the Spirit of God shows them the holiness of God, how they've offended that. Watch. The justice of God, how he must punish sin. And man, they are convicted. Again, they are shaking almost. They learn about the justice, the love of God that God sent his son. They know all of this. And that God, because of the death of his son on the cross, God gives away salvation for free. They literally could tell you all of these things. They're sitting here this morning. They're watching online. They can go down and tell you all of these facts because the Holy Spirit has shown them these facts. But the problem is they never fully embrace it. And given time, they embrace a new belief and ultimately reject what's they, what they once held to be in their mind. Ladies and gentlemen, don't just be informed. Be saved. Be saved. I think we have two more notes. If you're writing this down, write this. The people in verse 31 and 32 cannot be forgiven. Can't be forgiven. Why? Because the condition on our end for forgiveness is repentant faith. They can't have repentant faith because they have now refused to believe what the Holy Spirit says. There was a time where in their head they believed something, but now they refuse to believe what the Spirit says. It dawned on me the other night, and then again it did not hit me until this morning. 
I wrote two names down. I cannot tell you who they are. I am fearful. One is a former student. I don't know what year it was. I know the office. I know the office. I ended up moving to another office, but I had an office over at Oakwood. I was on pastoral staff. I remember the day. It was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving because I was kind of excited. We had a half day. We're going to go up to North Carolina, go see the family, going to have a long weekend. And this former student walked in. Man, I could tell you, he was shaking. He was tore up. He was under conviction. And he sat right across from my desk. And I'm telling you, if the Lord's ever used me to give a clear presentation of the gospel, he did that day. And I remember this young man just kind of, Brother Larry, if I said his name, you would know him. And I hope I am wrong. I hope he has since come to faith in Christ. But I put it right there, and I was not going to let him off the hook. And I said, listen, this is you giving up your sin because he struggled with women and drinking. And I could tell. And he walked out of my office. I said, so-and-so, just know that you may be walking away. I fear, did that young man blaspheme the Holy Spirit because he believed it? He was sitting there tracking with me, and yet he refused. And the other one, the only person here that I think has ever met the person that I'm going to talk about would be Deanna. Guys, it's the person that was my absolute number one best friend when I was in middle school and high school. He now denies God altogether, son of a pastor. I hope he has not blasphemed the Holy Spirit, but I fear he possibly has. Can I close this morning? 1 John chapter 9. Would you flip over there? Would you look at chapter 9? 1 John chapter 1. I'm sorry. 1 John chapter 1. Just look at it. I'm going to give you one more note. I see our time. 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 9. Before we look at verse 9, just you'll see 9 on the screen, but look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, I don't have a sin nature, will we deceive ourselves? Look down at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, I don't commit acts of sin. I don't have a sin nature, verse 8. I have not committed acts of sin. If we deny that, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I told you earlier, chapter 5 of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 6. This just happened to be where I had my devotions this last week was 1 John. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You guys have heard me say this over and over. I'm going to say, I'm going to put on the screen what I've said over and over and over. I'm going to give you the same three points that I've said many, many times, borrowed from Jeff Musgrave. But once he taught it and I understood it, I'm like, this literally is what saving faith means. What does it mean? Help me out. To confess means to what? Agree. So... Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins. So who, told, who tells us that we have sinned and that we're in trouble and we're convicted? Who tells us about the Lord Jesus? It is literally the Holy Spirit convicts us about our sins. That should lead us to confess, I agree with you, God, Holy Spirit, you're right about me. I agree what you say about Jesus. He is the Son of God. He did come in the flesh. He literally died on the cross. It is enough to pay for all my sins if I receive that. I agree with you. That's what confession means. Let's have the next note. You will notice three key words. Can I offer to you this morning saving faith? Saving faith occurs... When God's Spirit helps us understand the truths of the gospel, that's the first part of saving faith. You must understand. How do we know the truths of the gospel? What if somebody says, I don't believe all people are sinners? The Holy Spirit has to show you that. I don't believe I'm a bad person. I don't deserve to go to hell. The Holy Spirit has to bring you to that, per that point. Saving faith occurs when God's Spirit 
It's the Holy Spirit helps us understand the truths of the gospel, which I just gave a moment ago. We are sinners. God must punish and judge our sin because he's holy. He's determined that. But God loved us. He sent his son to die on a cross to take our sins. He literally carried the sins of the world, and Jesus paid for our sins. And God says, I will give you free salvation, eternal life. I'll give you this forgiveness where there's no more debt. I'll put you back on the right side of the law. I will make you in eternity what you were really designed to be the whole time. Through my son, will you receive his salvation? Will you receive him as Lord? Back to the note. Saving faith occurs when God's spirit helps us understand the truths of the gospel. That's in, I believe, the mind. You don't have faith in nothing. You don't have faith in faith. You have faith in something. You must understand these points. And then... What does the Holy Spirit do? He helps us then agree with Him. There's the second part. Saving faith has three aspects. It understands, and then it agrees with the Holy Spirit. What He says, to such a degree that we confess our sins. You are right, God. I'm a sinner. I need mercy. I need grace. I confess what you say about the Lord Jesus Christ and about your offer of salvation. So much so that the final is the three, the word trust. Ultimately, we believe to such a degree that we trust the promises of God to forgive us. That is saving faith. So, Jeff, what in the world does that have to do with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? My opinion. You see that? Don't go with the word confess. Understand. That's number one. Agree. Leads to confess. They're one and the same. One, that, those are two, and then trust. Trust is three. I believe that the person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit does it somewhere between number two and number three. They understand. They clearly get it. They even get it to the point that they agree at some point in their life. But they don't ever get saved because they don't ever rest, rely on, depend on, trust. Oh, I know the offer you've made, and I've got it in my head. I've got all the facts, and I believe this. But they don't trust the Lord as their Savior. And then they move through life, and ultimately, I don't believe that anymore. They have apostatized from that teaching. Guys, if that's true, here's what it means. I close with this. I'm going to give you a brief story that MacArthur closes with, and we'll finish. So you don't come to God when you're good and ready. You come to God when He's ready. You must be drawn by the Holy Spirit. MacArthur writes the following. Please listen. He says, during World War II, an American naval force in the North Atlantic was engaged in heavy battle with enemy ships and submarines on an exceptionally dark night. Some of you have even seen a Tom Hanks movie depicting basically this scene. Not This isn't based on that, but that idea. So you got it? It's World War II. Naval Force of America, the North Atlantic, trying to get supplies, no doubt, there to Britain. Enemy ships and submarines all around. Really, really dark night. Watch, he writes, six planes took off from the carrier to search out those targets. But while they were in the air, a total blackout was ordered for the carrier in order to protect it from attack. All lights off, all engines off, literally dark, just going dark, just floating in the water. They're all around us. We've got to get off the grid. But without lights on the carrier's deck, deck, the six planes could not possibly land. I mean, some of you get nervous landing on an airport in the middle of the day. You cannot land on a little bitty tiny 
even though you think it's big while you're on it, it's a little bit nothing in the middle of the ocean. So again, without lights on the carrier's deck, the six planes could not possibly land. And they made a radio request in the night for the lights to be turned on just long enough for them to come in. But because the entire carrier, with its several thousand men, as well as all of the other planes and equipment, would have been put in jeopardy, no lights were permitted. Can't do it. Sorry, guys. Please. Please. Can't do it. Say, so what What happened? When the six planes ran out of fuel, no doubt one by one, they had to ditch into the freezing water and all the crew members perished into eternity. Really happened. You say, okay, what in the world's the point? MacArthur writes, there comes a time when God turns out the lights, when further opportunity for salvation is forever lost. That's why Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. MacArthur writes, one who rejects full light can have no more light and no forgiveness. Guys, I'm not trying to scare you. Is there anyone here today? You know the facts. You know the facts. You agree with the facts. You agree with them in your head. But to this point in your life, you have yet to say, God, I am a sinner, and I believe what you said about Jesus. Jesus, have you ever done this? Jesus, you're the Lord, and I'm taking you as my Lord. I receive your salvation. You will be the Lord of my life. I'm not bringing any sin. I'm not bringing any of my good works. I'm not promising I'm never going to sin, but God, I'm not bringing any sin to the equation. I'm not having any little pet things. I get to keep this going. I am totally repenting. That young man in my office did not want to let go of two sins. And I felt like saying, Michael, do not. And he walked out. I wonder if he did blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. I've got to ask you. You get saved when God offers. You don't get saved just whenever you feel like it. Have you heard the gospel? You've heard it today. You say, Jeff, I understand it. I understand the facts. I even agree with the facts. But I have yet in my life to receive Christ, to receive his salvation, to take him on, to call upon him as my Lord. I have yet to receive his free gift of salvation totally for free. I have yet to do that. Then can I offer possibly one more time? Because if I'm telling you, if you keep rejecting, there can come a time in your life where you say, I don't even believe the Bible and I don't believe the gospel. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I know this, if you ever put your faith and trust in the Lord, you become a Christian, you get eternal life. The world around you will try to rock and attack your faith, but your faith will be victorious. It may get stretched thin, but it will never snap. You will never lose your salvation. You don't receive Christ as your Lord. You don't depend upon him. You don't receive him as Lord and Savior. Then what little faith you have in your mind is at risk. In John chapter 1, verse number 12, people were rejecting the Lord when he came into the earth. But John writes, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Paul was asked, sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? 
Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, you've heard the facts. Has the Holy Spirit convicted you, convinced you? Do you agree with him that you are a sinner and that Jesus is the Lord and the Savior? Salvation is in no one else. You say, I believe that. I confess that. I agree with that. Then can you honestly say, I receive it. I am depending, relying, trusting. If not, do it right now. Talk to the Father. Receive his free gift of salvation. I'm going to close in prayer here. Christians just before I do pray for our nation we are so divided there's some Christians here I could call some names you're in a very difficult situation can I just remind you one more time Jesus has all power and when you are brought to him he can change your situation he did this man this man was demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and possibly deaf. Jesus changed his life. What you're going through is not worse or harder than that. Have you done the basic step of, God, I'm bringing my difficult case to you? Last thing, Jesus lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he ministered, and that's how he lived a holy life. Somebody here this morning, just this last week, some certain sin has resurrected. It has whipped you, Christian, this last week. Can I just remind you, you're never going to defeat that sin on your own. But as you rely upon the Holy Spirit, literally as you see the markings, there it comes. There's the triggers. Here it comes. It's going to get me. What if you in that moment say, Holy Spirit, God the Father, let the Holy Spirit give me victory over this. And then flee from it to Him learn you some good Bible verses and claim them and you too will have victory let's pray Father glad this one's over Lord I thank you for what you've shown me in this passage Father I'd, I literally don't know if everything that I said today is accurate but Lord I've, I've done what I think you showed me so it's in your hands would you use it? Lord, if there's someone in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, let them not walk away from his call today. Let them yield. Lord, don't let one of our young people know the truth in their head and go off and be corrupted in school. Please don't let it happen, God. Let them give their life to you now. And then their faith is protected, guaranteed. Lord, let us live by the power of the Holy Spirit this week. You do within us what we could never do, and that's keeping the very laws of God. And they're not hard when we rely upon you. Your commandments are not grievous. They're sweet. They're very doable, and your yoke is light. Lord, use us this week to further your gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.